This is the Italian Citizenship Podcast, hosted by Marco Permunian and Rafael Di Furia. Hello there and welcome to another edition of the Italian Citizenship Podcast presented by ItalianCitizenshipAssistance.com. Of course, as usual, we are here with Italian attorney Marco Permunian. How are you doing, man? Good, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And of course, we're here as well with Mike, Mike Corradi from A History of Italy Podcast. How are you doing, man? Thanks so I'm much for coming. I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for making it out here to Rovigo. Uh, actually, we got very lucky because you're not from too far away from no, here. No, no. I'm actually currently living in Reggio Emilia, which is only about an hour and a half away from Rovigo. So, yeah, we lucked out on this one. Very, very much. And it's interesting because uh, Mike and I happened to meet, of all places, during lockdown on On Clubhouse. Clubhouse. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Meaning it is at times worthwhile, so... Yeah, like (laughs) just kind of barely. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) But today we wanted to go into the history of Italy. We wanted to also make this clear that for Italian citizenship by descent, Jure Sanguinis, this knowledge is not necessary and you will not be tested on this. This is just an episode that we wanted to do for some fun to give a little bit more historical context because we've gone into so much detail about the process itself. We wanted to go into what was going on in Italy because there are some of those aspects that I know and that Marco knows, but maybe there's some other little details that we've missed along the way, but that's why we wanted to bring Mike here because he is a history buff who loves all of this Absolutely. sort of stuff about Italy. So anyway, I guess the first thing that probably we should do is that maybe we'll divide this episode in two. Uh, we'll do first the kingdom of Italy and then the Republic of Italy and focus in this episode on the kingdom. And uh, as well, what we'll do is get started with kind of the dates of importance for Italian citizenship. And Marco will explain a little bit about why that date is so important. And then we'll get into the um, into the, the, the context with Mike here. So Marco, let's start from March 17th, 1861. Why is this important to Italian citizenship? Thank you. First of all, um, I wanted to also personally thank Mike for being here with us. As you said before, even if uh, there is no test about history uh, when you're applying for citizenship by descent or for citizenship by marriage or through residency, it's good to have Mike here to talk about uh, all of the events that we want to talk about today. But uh, starting with the first one, 1861. In 1861, Italy was unified as a nation. So prior to that date, there were only uh, a bunch of states. And then in that year, Italy became a nation or a kingdom, as you said before. But maybe Mike can give us more details. Yeah, well, obviously, first of all, I'm going to be very annoying, and you've given me a date, which is 1861, so I'm going to take you back a bit more. Um, 1861 is, is in a certain sense, the culmination of a historical process that we call risorgimento, which is rebirth or resuscitation or, or something like that. And I'm going to take you back because I wanted to try and anchor the, the historical aspect to the citizenship aspect, which is obviously what, what we're uh, focusing on. So I'm going to take you back with the help of a couple of, of characters. Now, one of the most important names in the Risorgimento was Giuseppe Mazzini. 
And Giuseppe Martini, we could say he he tried occasionally to get things going on a sort of military political level. He was never really successful. You know, he'd start these little revolutions and he'd be charging and like nobody was behind him kind of thing, you know. Um, but he was culturally very important for the idea of, of a united Italy. And back in, in 1830 in particular, he founded an association called Giovine Italia, which is Young Italy. And I want to mention that particularly because if you wanted to be a member of uh, Giovine Italia, you had to swear an oath, like, you know, in any kind of society. And the oath for the Giovine Italia started io cittadino italiano so I Italian citizen then he went on to swear a whole long unnecessarily long paragraph of stuff but the the, the, the central issue there is we had in 1830 uh, an organization in which the the oath was I Italian citizen before Italy actually existed then obviously we can go into the whole debate about you know when was Italy uh, when did when was the idea of Italy born for example before um, the star Raphael mentioned the kingdom of Italy the kingdom of Italy also existed in the Carolingian period it was a bit different because the Carolingians conquered the north couldn't be bothered to go any further they said okay this is the kingdom of Italy that will do but anyway that's the first person we wanted to mention, Giuseppe Mazzini, Giovanni Italia, and the oath, Io Cittadino Italiano. So already there we have the idea of citizenship, despite the fact there was no country yet to be a citizen of. Like, like Marco was saying, you could be a citizen of the Kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia, you could be a citizen of the, the Duchy of, of Modena, you could be a, king, a citizen of the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, of the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, which is a highly confusing name, but you couldn't at that time be a, a, uh, a citizen of, of uh, United Italy. The next step is 1848, which is a very important date also on a European level because Europe was swept by revolutions in that year, and in particular in Italy, our, our friends the Sicilians kicked things off. And then what, what would what people were asking for then was a constitution, basically. So, in the process of citizenship, a constitution is a, a vital element because that is the founding document on which you then base your citizenship. So, the, the, the uh, king of Naples granted a constitution. The pope, Pius IX, actually granted a constitution. Probably didn't really know what he was doing, but he did. Both of these constitutions of the Kingdom of, of the Two Sicilies and of the Papal States were repealed relatively quickly. A constitution that did stick was one of the Kingdom of Piedmont, Star, uh, Piedmont Sardinia. Sorry. And here, Charles Albert, who was the king at the time, first of all, he, he didn't like the idea of the word constitution because it sounded, you know, very much like uh, radical Republican commie stuff. So he said, <laughs> OK, you can have it. But you have to call it a statute. And everybody was like, okay, yeah, just give it to us and we'll call it a statute. And it stuck. And that was the Statuto Albertino, the 1848 Statuto Albertino, which is very important because that was sort of the starting point when in 1861 everybody looked around and said, okay, you know, how are we going to regulate this mess? We just stuck almost accidentally together. And then maybe if we can, we'll talk about how, uh, how the domino effect of, of the 1859, 1861 war which we in Italy call the second war of independence. Why the second? Because in 1848 we had a go 
with the first war of independence. What was the issue? The issue was that the regions that are now Lombardy and where we are today in lovely Rovigo, we are in the region of Veneto, were under Austrian control. So the idea of certain parts of uh, the Italian, both establishment, but also different levels, you know, intellectual students. Sometimes people tend to sort of put the whole Risorgimento in the hands of just a, an elite, but in reality it was a lot more widespread than that, you know, especially in the cities, artisans, workers, educated workers, and so on. So it is more widespread than people uh, are sometimes led to believe. So 1848, we had our first war of independence. We did a terrible job at it. We didn't win. Uh, the army was totally unprepared. Although here, interestingly, we did have some help. So it was not just the kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia, saying, okay, we're going to try and take Lombardy and uh, Venetia or Veneto, uh, but the Pope sent some troops, uh, the ne Neapolitans sent some troops, the Tuscans sent some troops. So it was actually an Italian attempt at unification, which didn't go right. The Pope, for example, sent his troops and then thought, mm, maybe it's not a good idea, told them to stop when they reached the Po. The general didn't obey, crossed the Po anyway. Anyway, 1848, first war of independence, total fiasco, didn't work. Then we come to the date that we mentioned at the beginning, uh, actually 1859, Second War of Independence. We have another figure on the scene who is Camillo Benso, Count of Cavour, who at the time was the Prime Minister of the, the Kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia, under the, the rule of the Savoy family, one of the most ancient families in Europe. And so Camillo Benso, Count of Cavour, had been maneuvering for quite some time to try and get the French on our side, because he looked at 1848 and said, okay, we're not going to be able to do it on our own, we need some help from our friends. Our friends at the time were uh, the France of uh, Napoleon III, and Camilo Benz was able to get him in, and thanks to the intervention of the French, we got them in, and the Kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia was able to extend to um, to take Lombardy, okay? And that is the unification of 1861. So, in reality, 17th of March, 1861, the process of risorgimento, or nation-building, was actually incomplete, okay? Uh, the, the Veneto area was added in the Third War of Independence, 1866, which, again, we lost, but luckily, with the system of allies, we had alliances we had set in place, we were able to uh, get it. Because we lost the war, but our allies won, so at the end we were able to get Veneto as well. But if we want to take a step back to um, 1861, or when the war started, 1859, or even 1848, so the first war, 1848, while they're trying to get themselves sorted out for this big war, this guy shows up on uh, Charles Albert's door and says, look, I'm a general, give me an army, I'll help. Charles Albert takes a look at this guy, you know, he's got this poncho, he's a bit weird looking, he's got radical ideas, he's a Republican, says, no, well, thank you very much. He talked to his minister, said, can we give this guy some money to go away, you know, can we get rid of him somehow? And he didn't participate in the First War of Independence. The man was Giuseppe Garibaldi. Mm. Second time round, he had become even more famous. This guy was like the top rock star in the world at the time. He was known from England to uh, Italy, America, New York, etc., etc. 
Why is Garibaldi also important if we're talking about citizenship? Because he allows us to go and look at what was going on in the Italian communities outside of Italy, okay? For example, Garibaldi went to work as a pasta tradesman. He was trading spaghetti in Brazil. In Brazil, he found an Italian community to help him. Uh, Garibaldi worked as a tutor in Istanbul, teaching, teaching Italian to the uh, children of, um, of a rich uh, widow, rich Italian widow. So he found an Italian community in Istanbul. He went to work in New York. He worked in a candle factory which belonged to Antonio Meucci, so the real inventor of the telephone. I'm just joking, obviously, American friends. Um, <laughs> he's, he's starting with them fighting words. He's coming in hot. <laughs> so uh, he, he worked in different communities. And wherever Garibaldi went and whatever community he found, he didn't find a community of Piedmontese, Tuscans, he found a community of Italians, and they called themselves an Italian community. So already before the unification, outside of Italy, there were groups of people of Italian origins who called themselves Italian, and not Piedmontese, Tuscan, Neapolitan, Sicilian, and so on, and so, so forth. Then where does this come from, this idea of being Italian? Like, is this something that's much more ancient, much more recent? Like... How does this come all into play? Well, there you, you would have to go into a whole other different podcast here. I remember you did it in one of your podcasts, Raphael, yeah. when you were talking about inventions that Italy brought to... Well, you know, the, the way I see it, obviously culture is many different aspects. Culture is language, culture is uh, customs, uh, dress, uh, history, etc., in the end, culture is also geography. I mean, right. if you look at Italy, you have this weird boot-shaped thing with like a little broccoli stuck on the top, you know, in the, in the, in the <laughs> That's boot. That's a great way of yeah. putting it. <laughs> and, you know, at a certain point all throughout history, humans have expanded as long as they could expand. So it's almost inevitable that sooner or later, you're going to get somebody who's going to want to conquer all of the boot. And, you know, 1861 was not the first time because the Lombards tried, uh, the Carolingians tried, various local figures, Arduino di Ivrea was a guy who popped up in the north, in Ivrea, obviously, uh, in, in the 900s, and he tried, um, Ladislaus of Napa, I mean, various people during history have tried to unify the country. Maybe not, you know, because of a feeling of Italian identity, maybe just because, you know, I've conquered this bit, there's another bit over there, I'll go and conquer that bit, you know, natural human expansion, if you will. Because your, your question, Rafael, is a great question because, you know, it opens up such a variety of different aspects. Because if you're talking language, the Italian language became the language of the Italians in the 1950s and 60s, you know, when television brought it into people's homes. Before that, if we started here from Veneto and we went down to Naples, for example, apart from the fact that we would have to pass various different customs, so, you know, you'd stop in, from Veneto, you'd stop uh, in Emilia, in Romagna and show your passport and have to pay taxes if you're transporting, same thing again after going through the papal states. And you would get to Naples and you would speak your Veneto dialect and you could not understand a word of what the Neapolitan guy speaking Neapolitan dialect was saying back to you. So even today that's a big issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously today and and unfortunately I mean uh, young people more and more have difficulty speaking their their local dialect. Right. Uh, except for certain areas. Obviously there are certain areas certain people. So we were saying Garibaldi is an excellent example of how 
you know, he, he found Italian identity outside of Italy before it was unified. Then the unification is, is, is a wonderful, typically Italian story because, you know, almost random uh, in the sense that after the Piedmontese, so Victor Emmanuel II had conquered the Lombardy area, then things started to explode all over Italy. Garibaldi comes up and he sees that the Sicilians are rebelling, so he says, okay, I'm going to form an army. I gathered a thousand people, the famous expedition of the 1000, l'impresa dei mille, and he set off for Sicily. And the king and the prime minister, so King Victor Emmanuel II, Prime Minister Cavour, they look at each other and say, now what do we do? You know, is somebody going to get angry? Are we going to be invaded? So they said, well, let's just pretend we have nothing to do with it. <laughs> we'll order our navy to stop him, but we'll wait a couple of days before sending the order. So by the time they sent the order to the navy, the Piedmontese navy, to stop Garibaldi, Garibaldi was in Sicily. And he had already won Sicily, basically, because once he reached the island, the island rebelled as well. And from the 1,000 that had landed, he ended up after the Sicily campaign. And then when he landed on the mainland, he ended up with about 50,000 uh, people following him because the armies just crumbled. You know, the, the armies of this ancient regime crumbled. And also the passage from Sicily to uh, the mainland was a wonderful passage and typically Italian because at this point the king didn't know whether it would be dangerous for Garibaldi to provoke the mainland. So he sent him a telegram and a letter and the telegram said stop. And the letter said, I'm going to send you a telegram that says stop, but don't stop. So the letter was private, obviously, in the telegram. I was, love this. Was I public. love this. It's fascinating. <laughs> and, that, and that was basically how Italy <laughs> was put together. And that was, you know, and then again, obviously, we could talk about the problems of, of how it continued because Rome was missing, Veneto was missing, uh, Trento and Trieste wouldn't come until the First World War. But if we want to, you know, try and limit the time, we have to stop there for 1861. Wow. Well, that was That's fantastic. Fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm like completely flabbergasted. It sounded like a whole episode of Game of Thrones there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No dragons and ravens. And so you have telegrams by then. So they didn't need the ravens. And I mean, you may as well have had some dragons. <laughs> sound like there was some fang tooth people in there one way or the other. But it's interesting what you said about, you know, uh, having an Italian community or communities abroad even before the unification of yeah. Italy um, and and but that Italy was only unified like formally in 1861 and that goes along with the fact that you can apply for Italian citizenship even if your Italian ancestor was born before the unification of Italy but he needed to be still alive at the time in of which the Italy was unified and then Maybe we can get into this in other episodes, but what you just said about, you know, missing parts of Italy like Veneto or other regions which were added afterwards, right. that also has to do with the yeah. uh, ability of some people uh, of being able to apply for Italian citizenship if their ancestor was born in those area you have or those areas you have to see when exactly he was born and where exactly he was born to understand if you can apply for yeah. Italian citizenship of course we are talking about primarily people from South America who normally are the ones who have ancestors from northern Italy because as I'm sure you are um, more aware than me uh, People from southern Italy, uh, they uh, emigrated primarily to uh, North America, the U.S. and Canada. And people from uh, northern Italy, they went to uh, South America, Brazil right. and uh, Uruguay, Paraguay. Yeah. Um, 
No, even I know actually like uh, I have some Brazilian friends who are from uh, Rio Grande do Sul, like the, the, the very southern tip of Brazil. And they're always so proud because they're also Italian Brazilians yeah. about how Garibaldi came and helped in their revolution. Yeah. They lost, but they're still very proud of that. Because they were supposedly an independent republic for a while. So. Yeah. And that they wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the wars of independence fought in South America had Italian contributions because Garibaldi would go and he would find Italians there. He would uh, get ships, you know, financed by Italians. And, uh, and then he traded pasta. He traded spaghetti, which obviously, you know, can't get any how more Italian. Yeah, like, you can't, like that is peak <laughs> Italian right there. But I guess this may be a good point to take it on to the next date that we've got on our list, and that is June 13th, 1912. So Marco, from an Italian citizenship perspective, what is the importance of that date? So um, first of all, and maybe Mike can comment on this, like between 1861 and 1912, so the dates that we're talking about here, I think it's when the uh, big emigration uh, from Italy to America, like um, especially like North America, the US and Canada started. But um, so like we, we, we saw like uh, towns in Southern Italy uh, emptying like people like escaping like even whole towns uh like people were uh, like maybe like one started and went to the u.s and like everybody else followed afterwards like it was very fascinating for me to learn how like towns were reduced in size even by in size even by 50 percent or more yeah. like people were living and uh, that's even led to today now that we find in the south and in sicily there are villages that are empty there's nobody living there there's not a soul in that town absolutely but to answer your question 1912 that's when uh, a very important citizenship law came into effect um, it was a citizenship law that regulated the uh, citizenship process in detail um, before then there was just um, there were just some provisions included in the Italian uh, civil code uh, which came into effect in 1865 but in 1912 the, the citizenship matter was regulated in detail by that law and basically we find the provisions that allow people to uh, now apply for citizenship by descent. For example, Article 1 said that uh, people born to Italian citizens are Italian citizens. So that's the Eurosanguinist principle, but just born to an Italian father. So at the time, uh, the Italian mother didn't have the right to pass her citizenship onto uh, her children uh, it started only in um, like that right was given to women only in 1948 and maybe we can talk about that, that later but uh, say that in 1912 basically um, that law which came into effect in 1912 basically gave the ability uh, to people uh, to claim Italian citizenship by descent through their ancestors so the 1912 law basically included a provision that says that the child of an Italian citizen born abroad, so for example in the US, and who became a citizen of the foreign country automatically by birth, can also maintain Italian citizenship, which they acquired by descent from their father. So. Uh, on one end, they became citizens of the foreign country by birth, involuntarily, just because they were born in that country. And on the other end, they could also, according to this law, maintain 
their Italian citizenship that they got from their father. Um, this is a very important provision because it allowed basically uh, babies who were born abroad to maintain dual citizenship. Uh, and it was an exception to the impossibility of holding dual citizenship because back then, according to this same law, uh, the person who voluntarily acquired a foreign citizenship lost their Italian citizenship. So there was a big difference, basically, between somebody who was emigrating to another country and voluntarily petitioned to become a citizen of that country, and that person lost their Italian citizenship. Uh, and the person who was born in the other country and became a citizen of the other country, basically, involuntarily. So the combination of these provisions allows people to now apply for citizenship by descent based on on their ancestors. But it's very important that their ancestor did not become naturalized prior to 1912, so prior to when this law came into effect. So the Italian ancestor that you're using to apply for Italian citizenship by descent, not only he must have naturalized after the birth of the child born in the foreign country, because only in that situation the child would have been born with dual citizenship, but also the Italian ancestor must have not naturalized prior to 1912. Yeah, as, as, as you said, Marco, basically the, the speaking of the, the immigration, that those years between 1861 and 1912 were where this mass immigration came about from the south of Italy to uh, North America, because basically we had a situation in which we had the unification under the kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia, which was a kingdom that had industrialized and made great advances in a very short time, in about, you know, 10, 15 year span in which Cavour really invested, going into quite deep debt. Indeed, the debt that the Kingdom of Italy inherited was that of the Kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia. And they, you know, that's one of the reasons why some people say, well, did the Piedmontese really want to unify all of Italy? Because then they had, at the same time, they unified a country in which you had this southern part, which was still a very agricultural based economy, very few, very low level in industrialization. And just to give you an example, you know, we talked before about the, the wars of 1848 and 1859. And within that 10 year span, it was a total difference because in 1848, the troops were still being moved around on foot. In 1859, they were starting to be moved around on trains, you know, that the French troops arrived quickly to the front, to the on the front, because they were moving by train. This didn't exist in the south, so the Piedmontese had these regions in the south that they were not capable of governing properly. Uh, indeed, there was a lot of repression, there was a lot of violence, we had the whole phenomenon of banditismo, so bandits, groups of bandits moving around, which some people trace back to the origin of the mafia as well. So, the, the, basically, the new Italian government really didn't know how to deal with the South. And it's actually quite a dark chapter of Italian history, the way the South was treated during the unification. And it's absolutely no surprise that many of the villages that Marco mentioned were, were you know, disappeared, basically, because people just, you know, weren't able to, to survive. But, as we said, it does bring us to 1912. We did have, still in 1912, this unrest, the Southern question, which last till today, like Rafael, you were saying, it's still an issue today, that the difference between the North and the South. No, it's huge. And I mean, like, even without getting too political here, I would argue that it, the, the dark part of Italian history with the way that the South gets treated 
may continue even to an extent until today. And I mean, this is why my family ended up in America. Like, because, I mean, there were, okay, there was more than just the political situation, more than just how they were treated, but also there was difficulties in just simply living on the land. There was problems like water was not safe to drink. That's huge. Like, we're humans, we need water. But sorry, I interrupted you there. No, no, absolutely. No, no, I think it's very important to, to, to show that this process is still you know, work in progress to this day, you know, to this day, we still have a bit of a, a, a south north uh, internal immigration, which is, again, one of the positive, if you will, aspects of COVID is that young people maybe are managing to return to their homes in the south because they can smart work, etc., which I think is, is also a good thing. I mean, my, my wife and I plan to go to Puglia when we retire. So we're heading south. Absolutely. Oh, that sounds like a fantastic plan right there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> So anyway, 1912, we had this, you know, the Southern question, but we also had unrest in the North. You know, it's a time of social clashes, rights, workers' rights, uh, strikes, also violent strikes, violent repressions of strikes. And Italy is also involved, and this could be why uh, citizenship becomes, you know, more and more important, because Italy is starting to be involved in empire building. I mean, it's not new, because Italy started to be involved in empire building almost from the very beginning, so the 1870s, starting to um, buy areas in Africa, uh, parts of Eritrea, um, and expanding militarily. So by the, the turn of the century, they had uh, parts of Eritrea, parts of Ethiopia, then were expanding to Sudan. And sort of actually in the year, the citizenship law came out. And one of the reasons could be because, you know, they started to think about who's a citizen, who's not a citizen, because we had these new colonies coming in with, you know... Mm, like a migration. Of yeah, people. yeah, migration. I can't think of coloni. I can't think of uh, the name colonies. in English. No, the person who goes and... Oh, the, uh, uh, colonialist, A colonialist, maybe? oh yeah. Oh, or the person that goes... The person from lives. the other place who comes to them. The, exactly. The, the I can't country. think of the word for that in English. <laughs> Anyway, they, you know, they were being sent out there. We, we, you, could, you had also people bringing African people back. And so 1912 is interesting because it's actually the law that Marco mentioned came out during the Turkish-Italian War, Italo-Turkish War, which not many people know about. is relatively short war, one of the few that Italy managed to win, uh, basically because the, Tur the Turks by then, the Ottoman Empire was too far away, and it was, you know, by now known as the weak man of Europe. They were not able to sustain a war that far away, and Italy added Libya to its uh, colonial holdings in this period. An interesting little anecdote there, this is actually the first war in history that had an aerial bombing. So before then, airplanes hadn't really been used. You know, the Wright brothers had only just invented the thing. So that was the first time in which they were used both defensively and offensively in a war. And basically, the first aerial bomb was launched by a soldier, by, by a, a pilot. It was sort of as big as an orange and just thrown down by hand from the plane. And wow. that was the first example of an aerial bombing in history. That's uh, and, and the Italians did it, as many firsts in, in history. It was, uh, And so when I say that, I kind of think of, I don't know if you've seen the film My Big Fat Greek Wedding, when the father, whatever anybody says, oh yeah, because the Greeks did. I feel like I do that with Italian. <laughs> I mean, no, the Italians did that first and they did that. And they, as uh, long as you're not spraying Windex on people, uh, I think we'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll stop before that. <laughs> and so... You know, this new baby nation, because it was a nation that was not even 50 years old, was now getting in on the whole expansion game, on the colonialism game. And interestingly, 
from the point of view of strategic alliances, Italy was in a really weird moment because it was in what was called the Triple Alliance. So actually, Italy in that historical period was allied with Austria and Prussia and, and Germany, sorry. Uh, which was such an unnatural alliance because you know, they'd been fighting Austria until just the previous century. Trieste and uh, Trieste and uh, Trento were still in Austrian hands and Italy still wanted them. So to be in that strange alliance was very unusual. It was basically because after the unification there had been a great fear in Italy that the French would intervene. They were afraid that Italy was getting too powerful. They were seen as the, the protectors of the, the Pope. So as long as Napoleon III was in power, Italy was not able to take um, Rome. And Italy was only able to take Rome in, uh, on 20th of September 1870, the famous Breccia di Porta Pia, the, 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 the opening of the Pia Gate, uh, when Napoleon III was deposed after the war with, uh, with Prussia. So Italy was in this weird alliance. Then they made a secret pact with France and the secret pact didn't come out until after the second world war so it's a very strange time in italy absolutely dominated by a political figure called giovanni giolitti so if you look at the governments which already in the kingdom of italy were always falling like fly you know they were if you if you count the number of governments both in the kingdom of italy and then in the republic of italy we have like a government every week or you know not, that's exaggerating like but <laughs> but every year or so a new government a government would fall and I think the one. statistic is like one point something years or something yeah, like that yeah. or two. well at the moment in all of the history of the 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 monarch the kingdom of italy and all of the history of the Republic, the longest serving government is the 2001-2005 Berlusconi government. So it took us until 2001 to get a government which actually served all through the elected legislature. Because uh, I, I don't know if you've spoken about it in the podcast, but we in Italy, we don't elect a president. We don't elect a government. We elect a parliament. Then it's up to the president of the Republic who is elected by the previous parliament to look and say, okay, you know, you have the most votes, you try and form a government, and so on. So, 1912, maybe the last thing we can say there is, obviously in history we've, we've seen all of this, so we tend to have this habit of looking retroactively at, at things as they developed, and in light of this, 1912 was a year in which it was a young socialist activist, a journalist, activist who had made himself known in Switzerland as an exile, made himself known in Trento as a socialist activist, left-wing agitator, very uh, violent man by the name of Benito Amilcare Andrea Mussolini. So, uh, who I didn't know yet all those names. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I, yes. I knew Benito, but like that's. That's a heavy name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were all names of sort of revolutionaries. Andrea, Andrea Doria, uh, uh, Benito was Benito Juarez. Uh, because his father also was very active. Was a very active socialist. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Wow. Uh, put in prison various times. His father also right. Mussolini served various prison terms. Right. Uh, and 1912, he was already active. He was about two years away from his, you know. 180 degree turn on his position because at the beginning he was very much against the first world war and then 
just before the start of the war, he became an interventionist. I don't know if we say that in English, but I don't know, it sounds okay. Sounds uh, good it sounds good. Yeah, somebody who wanted to intervene in the war, and uh, and and he had this about face. Some people say money from France helped that about face. Uh, could be it wasn't anything rare at the time because before the start of the First World War, the European powers were actually buying newspapers in Italy, and the Austrians, for example, bought a newspaper because both sides were trying to either keep Italy out or to bring Italy in the war wow. uh, on one side or the other. But again, that's getting a bit too far ahead of ourselves. That's, I would say, enough for 1912. Again, absolutely fascinating. I'm getting so blown away by all this information. <laughs> it's like, okay, like you learn bits and pieces of this, but all of this context completely just reshapes everything it gives you. I mean, the way that you're able to describe this, like it, it just... I get this like vivid picture of what was going on in my head. Absolutely. Well, if I can say something that um, when I started podcasting, I thought it would be a lot easier than it is in the sense. I said, okay, I'm going to go online. I'll look here, look there. I'll put everything together and I'll find it. And so a really big, big shout out now after a couple of years of podcasting to books and libraries, uh. because this is stuff you find in books. You know, like, I don't know if you remember when we were kids, Jiminy Cricket, we were on the cartoons. Where did I learn? I learned it all from books. And he was right. I mean, you can't find this stuff online, sifting through Wikipedia. You, you, have, to, you have to get back to those books, get in those libraries. Uh, if you can, well, absolutely wonderful experience. Go to the archives, sift through the ancient manuals. But it, it's books. So that's the only no, way. And we don't, we don't value books enough in this day and age. I mean, I'll admit, I'm the first to admit that I hate to read books, but it was school that ruined it for me. Yeah. But I love history. I Just love like school ruins history very often because, you know, the battle zones. Everything. Uh, <laughs> yes, me. <laughs> Well, who was it, Mark Twain or somebody that said, you know, I never let school get in the way of my education? Or, it, was, it sounds like something he would say, definitely. <laughs> but I think this may actually be um, a good point to move on to uh, 1922, which is, at least as far as citizenship goes, not something that necessarily happened here in Italy, but it does relate to kind of the overall situation. So Marco... Uh, in 1922, what was it that happened uh, that is important to Italian citizenship by descent in the United States? In 1922, a very important law in the U.S. came into effect. Uh, it's called Cable Act. Basically, starting from 1922, uh, women in the U.S., th their citizenship was no longer connected to the citizenship of their husbands. So before 1922... Uh, women shared the same citizenship that their husbands had, uh, the head of the family. So they couldn't have a different citizenship. They were just considered to be U.S. citizens automatically if their husbands were U.S. citizens. And for example, for like talking about the Italian immigrants, uh, you know, those couples, husband and wife who went together who emigrated together to the US and became naturalized only the husband could become naturalized prior to 1922 the woman was not allowed to uh, petition to become a US citizen she basically followed the citizenship of her husband so when the husband became naturalized she also became naturalized so the two citizenships were tied were connected in the eyes of the US government and that's very important because it's very important for applications for Italian citizenship. Uh, you and I talked extensively about 
1948 cases where people have to use the female ancestor to apply for Italian citizenship and they have to basically use a female ancestor whose child was born before 1948. Well, the Cable Act is very important because prior to that date, uh, like I said, women became U.S. citizens automatically when their husbands became naturalized or, or when they got married to their uh, husband who was already a U.S. citizen. And people can use the fact that the woman became a U.S. citizen automatically uh, to apply for Italian citizenship as the legal ground for their case, even if the child of the woman was born after her naturalization. But because it was an involuntary naturalization, it is now considered by the Italian government and by the Italian courts to be uh, a situation that was discriminatory against women. So uh, they consider the naturalization of the woman as if it never happened. So they consider that the woman uh, retained their, the women retained their Italian citizenship and could pass it on to their children born prior to 1948. So in short, if you have a female ancestor who became naturalized uh, automatically through their husband, uh, according to the laws that were in effect in the U.S. before 1922, even if the child of this woman uh, was born after the naturalization, but because the naturalization happened automatically, uh, you can use that woman and you, you can say, you can argue in court that the woman successfully passed her citizenship on to her child. And, you know, these cases are very popular. People are winning cases and uh, it's a very safe path to citizenship. Fascinating. But I'm curious, Mike, what was going on in Italy around this time in history? Yeah, that was a big, big time in, in history in Italy. Uh, let's start from the government. The government at the time was the Facta government, and he had the interesting uh, sort of uh, precedent of being the very first government in history after a socialist government. So before the Facta government, we had the, the first and only socialist government of the kingdom of Italy. And um, it is the fear of this red wave, you know, the socialist or, or the communist even power coming in and, and taking power in Italy. Uh, I mean, we have to remember that we had the 1917 Bolshevik revolution in the eye, you know, in everybody's memories, the, the, the civil war in Russia until 1921 was still very much active. And so this scare, this red scare, was used very much by Benito Mussolini, who by now had done the 180-degree switch from socialism to his own new, call it movement, um, which was fascism. Uh, fascism, the, the party itself wasn't actually formed until 1921, so it was very, you know, 1922 it was very much a novelty uh, as far as a party goes. Obviously, the, the, the phenomenon, the movement of fascism itself was not because already in, in uh, 1919 we had the first formation of the fasci di combattimento. The word fascio basically refers back to Roman or even ancient Greek symbol, which is, you could call it a bundle, like a bundle of sticks. Fascio in Italian actually means bundle. And, and the idea was, this was a symbol, it's still used today, I mean, you can find it in the American Congress. It is not, it's not like the swastika, which has become an sort of inherently evil symbol. The, the fascio itself is 
you know, it's a good message because together a bunch of sticks cannot be broken or bent, basically. So there's strength in numbers. It can be not only a right wing, but also a left wing message, if you will. So il fascio was this Roman symbol of power. It was like the bundle of sticks with an axe, which is the symbol of, of power, of, of um, executive and judicial power together. So the power of life or death. And that's where the word fascism comes from, il fascio. And that's where these fasci di combattimento, these groups of, uh, let's say, revolutionary, very violent revolutionaries, uh, that they called themselves revolutionaries, they say, who implemented the fascist regime through violence. And the cable law came very, very... Uh, September, we said, I believe, the cable law? Yeah, September uh, 22nd. September came just a month before the March on Rome, uh, October 1922, in which Mussolini, who had already won some seats uh, in, the, in the election of 1921, definitively, I mean, he was not satisfied with the result of that election. In the end, he instigated his followers... The march on Rome happened. He was off in Milan waiting to see what happened. He was going to see I mean, if he needed to join his followers in Rome or run out, run away to Switzerland. And uh, the march on Rome was successful. And then, and so the king assigned Mussolini the task of forming a new government. And from starting 1922 to about 1924-25, Mussolini worked within more or less the confines of parliamentary uh, representation of the parliamentary system. Then 24-25 is when you had the, the, le the leggi fascistissime, the, the most fascist laws, if you will, uh, in which, um, let's say, the stranglehold on democracy was definitively put in place. 1922, as we said, for Italy, absolutely fundamental date because you have the March on Rome. So the start of the Ventennio, the 20-year, more than 20-year period in which Benito Mussolini and his fascist party took power. It would last until July of uh, 1943, okay, in which he was then deposed by his own Consiglio del Fascismo, his fascist council. And Mussolini, we, we must remember the first time Mussolini was deposed, he was not deposed by partisans or by, um, or by advancing allies, but his own party saw the writing on the wall. They had already had the invasion, the, the Allied invasion of Sicily, so they said, look, we can't go on with this guy. They deposed him. It was his own government who then sent him to the Gran Sasso in Abruzzo, to where he was in prison, and then where the Nazis then had the operation in which they para put and sent in the paratroopers and, and saved him. But that's sort of the, obviously a story for another day. 1922 is the start of the Ventennio Fascista, the fascist 20-year period, and we could say in our sort of uh, pathway, it's the end of the first part of our story, because the Mussolini government was practically, we could say, the last government of the Kingdom of Italy. I'm blown away by this episode. I can't wait for the part two to this where we get to talk more about Italy. I've learned so much uh, about Italy and what's gone on here. So thank you so much, Mike. It's for a great pleasure. No, thank you because, you know, as a sort of being passionate about history, you're always looking for somebody who actually will want to listen to. So you, when you've run out of your family and your friends, and they're like, "Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah." Mattel, that's when you yeah, start a podcast. Yeah, that, that's exactly. That's when your children are saying, "Please, Dad, no more. It's time to start a podcast." <laughs> no, there's a podcaster from um, 
uh, Utah, who I've spoken with a ton of on uh, on Clubhouse. Also, maybe you've spoken to him. Also, Brandon Ushio, and he he does uh, podcasts on superheroes and stuff. And he's like, my wife just said to me one day, enough. Like, you got to find people to talk to. <laughs> That's when I started my podcast. <laughs> so anyway, if people are interested to hear more about Italian history, uh, at least until the next episode, where can they find you? Well, uh, A History of Italy. I chose A History because it's not the definitive history of Italy, obviously. You can find it on all podcast catchers or apps. So Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Overcast, anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, we have a website, www.a historyofitaly.com and there you can click through to all the various players and uh, information and so on. Absolutely fantastic and of course Marco from Italian Citizenship Assistance if anybody is seeking any uh, help with this process how can they get in contact with you and your team? People can contact us through our website italiancitizenshipassistance.com or they can give us a call the number is on the website. Well, absolutely fantastic and thank you all so much for joining us for another episode of the Italian Citizenship Podcast. Of course, if you're interested in more conversations like this, be sure that you are subscribed to this YouTube channel with the notification bell turned on and then also to the audio-only exclusive podcast. But if you are also subscribed to this channel, you also are automatically subscribed to the Italian Real Estate Podcast. And of course, also, if you're interested in more about life in Italy, living in Italy as an Italian dual citizen, be sure to come over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Raffaele Di Furia, or you can find my audio only podcast, Not Your Average Globe Trotter, where actually, probably by the time this episode comes out or sometime around this, Mike and I are going to be doing an episode or two over there. So anyway, in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us again for another episode of the Italian Citizenship Podcast presented by ItalianCitizenshipAssistance.com. We've been here with Marco Permunian, Mike Corradi, I'm Rafael Di Furia. Stay safe and healthy out there and we'll see you all next time. Later. Bye.